It is obvious from the outset that the Scherzo movement caricatures the march of the first movement, but dramatically it goes far beyond that. Mephistophelian mimicry of Faustian heroism, vetted during the first movement's development section, becomes the Scherzo's focal point, if not its raison d'etre. The first movement's heroic march is made to sound awkward and disfigured by shifting the stress to an offbeat and reconverting its meter from quarter time to triple time. During the scherzo movement's two trios, this perverted march beat is further distorted, treated as dance music that conjures up an image of Mephistopheles pirouetting around the stage as he mocks the hero's proud bearing. Clipped dotted rhythms, grotesque slides of a super octave in the brass, and the motive of the devil's dance, all of which represent the hero's inner demon, return here as principal elements. Eerie visions, goblinesque distortions, and frightening jolts in the brass, combine with flickering grace-noted figures and diabolical trills in woodwinds to evoke a satanic image of the underside of the hero's character. The coda prophesies catastrophe. The contrast between the twisted, brutalized march of the scherzo sections and the mimetic rococo dance music of the trios are made even grimmer by the doleful tones of the chordal fate motive. Some have called the movement a dance of death, following the suggestion in Alma's recollections that despite the relatively happy summers of 1903 to 1904 when the symphony was written, Mahler was consumed by thoughts of death. Yet the immediate effect of the music that emerges from his gloomy contemplations is not terrifying or horrific. Mephistopheles does not need to frighten Faust in order to defeat him. He only needs to show him that his power and bravery are mere absurd posturing. So in this movement, one can imagine the clever devil's agent flitting and strutting about the stage as he mocks the hero for his own heroism, a scene that Redlich likens to a Hoffmanesque puppet show. Gabriel Engel referred to gargoyles leering in dark corners, suffused with murky atmosphere. Even the reverie of lost innocence invoked during the chorale bridge passages of the first movement has a picaresque quality when conjured up in the first trio. Psychologically, the conjunction of the first two movements demonstrates a keen sense of self-understanding and depth perception. On a conceptual level, the scherzo represents a nihilistic response to the positive and creative aspects of human life. The two trio sections contrast markedly with the spooky scherzo music, yet their musical substance is drawn from the latter, though devoid of spectral grotesqueries and biting sarcasm. Instead, the trios relish in Haydn-esque delicacy and grace. Mephistopheles' caricature of Faust also takes a different turn. What was rude and nasty mimicry in the scherzo section becomes obnoxious parody in the trios. Faust's nemesis apes his sense of pride by turning it into inane prancing and strutting to the strains of a dainty, slow lendler. Far from a simple country dance, this lendler is fashioned from musical clichés that border on kitsch, contorted by numerous meter shifts and strong accents on upbeats, and occasionally interrupted by brief flights of fancy, clearly intended as mockery. Unlike the Fifth Symphony's scherzo, which also uses dance music as a vehicle for mimicry, no waltz appears in the scherzo of the Sixth. 
Several commentators consider the trio a recollection of the peace and innocence of childhood and country life, affected by simple folk tunes set in a comparatively relaxed and pleasant atmosphere. But as Moscow Karner correctly points out, these elements are treated in a rather brutal, acrid, if festive manner. The cynicism of Mahler's parody is no less apparent in the trios than in the scherzo. Alma claimed that in the trios, her husband was imitating their children's vigorous horseplay in the sandy lakefront of their summer home. She also thought that the movement ends with a frightening presentment of doom. As she put it, ominously, the childish voices become more and more tragic and at the end die out in a whisper. But Deacon Newland rightly suggests that more alarming things than children at play seem to come to light in this scherzo. Yet one can detect a childlike quality in the trio music, especially in its mimetic figuration. Floros likens the oboe theme of the trio to the theme played by both the oboe d'amore and the oboe in the scherzo section from Strauss's Sinfonia Domestica, which was published in March of 1904, just before the summer during which Mahler completed his sixth symphony. Strauss initially entitled the section Kindliche Spiel, Elternklick, Childish Play, Parental Happiness. However, the sixth is too serious a work to trivialize its meaning by such a comparison. The scherzo is no laughing matter. Even its inane mimicry has terrible implications. In fact, when Mahler's daughter Marie died a few years after the symphony was completed, Alma recalled her fears that both the sixth and Kintototen leader, three songs of which were written at about the same time as the symphony, were prophetic of this terrible tragedy. She apparently warned Mahler that by writing these works, he was tempting fate. Mahler equivocated about whether to place the scherzo in second or third position in the symphony. Although the first published edition had the scherzo second, Mahler performed the Andante movement before the scherzo in the premiere given in Essen on May 27, 1906, and gave explicit instructions to his publisher to change the order of these middle movements in the score. In his last performance of the sixth, on 4 January 1908, Mahler may have again changed his mind and reverted to the original order. Only one critic from Neues Wiener Journal noted the change, while as many as five others indicated that the revised order had been retained. So what actually happened? Donald Mitchell speculates that Mahler may have experimented with the original order during the final rehearsal for the premiere which often serves as the basis for a review by critics who do not actually attend the performance. To add to the confusion, Alma apparently advised Mengelberg to place the scherzo second. Donald Mitchell suggests that either version may be valid and may have had Mahler's blessing. However, the value of breaking up two fast movements with a slow one is outweighed by the effectiveness of placing the scherzo movement immediately after the movement that it parodies. The first. Yet some commentators suggest that the tragic episode of the scherzo's coda section would be a fitting prelude to the finale, and the shocking resumption of A minor at the beginning of the scherzo would sublate the heroic A major conclusion of the first movement. Maybe it should, for that is precisely the reason for this juxtaposition of tonalities. 
Conceptually, the scherzo does deflate the heroic temperament of the first movement by parodying it. Moreover, the placement of a tender-hearted andante movement between scherzo and finale offers a respite from the conflict presented in these movements. The main tempo of the scherzo has also been the subject of much disagreement. Many conductors, emphasizing the importance of the title scherzo, choose a rapid tempo, thereby creating a more marked contrast with the first movement. In doing so, they completely ignore Mahler's initial tempo marking, Wuchtig, which calls for weightiness that would be negated by a fast tempo. To reinforce the scherzo's parody of the first movement's march, the main tempo of the former should approximate that of the latter. Just as a march rhythm began the first movement, so it begins the scherzo. What was a strong and steady beat in the former, however, is now grotesquely deformed in the latter. Common time for the march in the first movement is changed to triple meter in the scherzo, with heavy accents forced upon each upbeat, thus de-emphasizing the first beat and thereby causing the march to limp along awkwardly. Strings mimic the unbalanced march rhythm by adding a rising minor second to each beat, thereby forming a principal rhythmic motif, we'll call motif X. Here it is. A grace-noted falling third figure, we'll call motif Y, that begins on the first beat of the bar with a strong accent on the first note, is added to this march rhythmic motif. Sharp staccatos, flitting grace notes, and clipped note values reinforce the music's devilish character. Other figures do so as well. For example, rising and falling scales that are toyed with in the trio sections and end with whipsaw figures and violins. Also, an upbeat of four rising 32nd notes that relate to the upward-thrusting 16th note figure of the first movement, referred to as motif Y. This figure will also return in the finale. We will also hear the motive of the Devil's Dance that had already appeared in the previous movement, now sounding even more terrifying. The latter motive no longer falls diatonically, but chromatically, adding to its diabolical character. Tinkling sounds of a xylophone embellish the spectral atmosphere. Even the chorale passage from the first movement returns in the horns, harmonically distorted so as to sound sinister, with lurid tones and diminished harmonies, and to sound grotesque when played with the upward-thrusting 30 seconds from the first movement. The major minor fate motive also makes an appearance, subtly integrated into the harmonic motion that wavers between tonic and dominant, with an emphasis on the minor second in the upper register. Repeating notes and rhythmic couplets contrast with ascending and descending scales. Indeed, the entire scherzo section might be considered Mahler's danse macabre. Shades of the grotesqueries of Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique are apparent in the orchestration. 
Yet the musical material is not overpowering, but delicate, almost refined, like an impish parody of Le Style Galant. Let's listen to the entire first part of the scherzo. As we just heard, the first part of the scherzo section ends with a screaming B-flat seventh chord. This horrific chord recalls the cry of distress that opened the finales of the first and second symphonies. A subsidiary section of the scherzo follows, continuing to develop the material of the principal section, but in a manner that anticipates the trio, especially in its sequence of meter shifts. After an extended brass chorale passage, it sounds even more gloomy and morose. The scherzo section ends on another screeching outburst on A, like the wail of a perturbed spirit that emerges from a long chain of clip-dotted rhythms that descends chromatically. The march beat then resumes, but gradually slows down and fades out until it disappears after being played meekly by a single oboe. Now the first trio begins, shifting meters between 4-8 and 3-8, with an occasional 3-4 on an elongated phrase. This slow, delicate Lendler in F major is marked altfattische, mechlich langsamer, old-fashioned, noticeably slower. It begins with the woodwinds 
on a new theme that contains the repeating notes of the march rhythm that now become staccato eighths or clipped sixteenths, to which is added a variant of motive Y. Banal sixteenth note figuration combines with dactylic phrases and these repeating notes to produce a lendler of uncharacteristic charm and grace. But the shifting meters throw the dance music off balance, making it sound awkward and ungainly. The upbeat of the repeating notes are occasionally accented, as during the scherzo section. This caricature of elegant dance music is frequently interrupted by brisk figures of inane sixteenths played more rapidly, as if out of step. They seem to conjure up a picture of Faust's provocateur, no longer able to restrain himself from laughing out loud, as he continues his parody of Faust's heroism. It should not go unnoticed that this bit of figuration consists of rapidly repeating falling fourths. Yet another parody on the first movement's march, here played in double time. Then, as nice as you please, the trio theme continues undaunted by this mocking intrusion. Soon elements from the scherzo section begin to appear in the strings, taking part in Mephistopheles' taunting mockery. It becomes obvious that the trio's dance music is derived from the scherzo section, thus a parody on a parody. The entire movement has its conceptual parallel in the Mephisto movement of Liszt's Faust symphony. Here, as there, Faust's music from the first movement is lampooned so that he is reduced to a cartoon character, parading about like a pretentious fool. After yet another intrusion of flighty rapid figuration, this time falling into the bass, the march tread of the introduction returns. Horns decorate the march beat with flatted grace notes. Some of the horns have repeating notes played against others in descending chromatics. Mahler directs them to play this passage trudgingly, with each of its two-bar repetitions diminishing from forte or fortissimo, creating the effect of yawning, as if Mephistopheles seems to tire of his own lampooning.
This passage serves as a transition to the subsidiary section of the first trio, with its tempo continually slowing down. A new Lendler theme in F minor now appears, played softly in woodwinds, at a slower pace against tapping strings on the clip-dotted rhythmic variant of the tr- march tread. This new theme begins on an upbeat of 4.30 seconds, sourced in the scherzo section, but also, of course, a variant of motive Y from the first movement that will return during the introduction of the finale. Here it is played lumbersomely, losing all of the forceful thrust that it had in the first movement. Flickering dotted rhythms are juxtaposed with chromatic figures, combining the sinister quality of the latter with the skeletal visage of the former. Without warning, the scherzo section returns, rudely shunting aside the new Lendler theme. This abrupt shift in both mood and tempo is quite a shock. The scherzo subject seems to have regenerated itself, sounding even more morbid and ferocious when played by the full orchestra. Following the return of the march beat pounded out by timpani during the scherzo's subsidiary section, The vulgar chorale segment growls mendaciously on contrabassoon, trombones, and bass tuba. A chorale fragment integrates with the scherzo theme and elements from the first trio, confounding March and Lendler. Introduced by the 32nd note upbeat, an enormous wail bursts out from the entire orchestra on an A major chord, and the trumpet states a phrase from the scherzo theme giving it an heroic bearing, made more emphatic by the clip-dotted rhythms of the march, played forcefully on horns with bells held high. This is the only moment in the scherzo when Faust seems to assert himself and squarely faces Mephistopheles' prattling ridicule.
The scherzo section winds down on falling figures from the trumpet's call, while the march beat works its way gradually during a deft transition into the second trio in D major. Essentially, the same material from the first trio is presented in the second, but the orchestration is fuller. Once again, the first Lendler theme is occasionally interrupted by rapid, silly figuration. The contrast between the graceful, if unbalanced, Lendler theme and these flighty interruptions unsettle the dance music until it bursts out furiously, but it quickly calms down and regains its composure. The twists and turns of the Lendler during the second trio become increasingly confused. Suddenly, timpani reassert the march tread, calling a halt to such falderall. Bass strings follow with their flickering grace-noted variant of the march rhythm, introducing a reorchestrated version of the lugubrious bridge passage that led to the subsidiary section of the first trio. This time, oboes intrude with the scherzo theme, seeming not only quite at home in this strange atmosphere, but gently forcing the trio music out of the picture. As the easy-paced version of the scherzo theme grows stronger, the scherzo itself abruptly returns in both its original tempo and key, A minor. Its maniacal furor and grotesque mockery showing no signs of abating. Again, a sinister brass chorale in D minor leads to a sudden orchestral explosion on a terrifying yet harmonically ambivalent seventh chord, which anticipates the German sixth chord that will begin the finale. As this chord diminishes, four oboes arrogantly assert, of all things, the trio's Lendler theme, as if it were a sentence of doom. Horns wail out the grace-noted descending scale from the previous bridge passage, here in chromatics, against another descending chromatic scale, this one in 30 seconds, played staccato by strings and flutter-tongued flutes. This appalling outburst is prophetic of the tragedy to come. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Timpani and bass drum quietly resume the march tread as the coda begins, with music from the trio, now sounding even more spooky in a chamber-like setting. A dismal chorale on the chordal motive of fate sounds woefully in trumpets against the trio themes in clarinet, oboe, and solo violin. In typically Malarian fashion, the trio music disintegrates into fragments scattered around the orchestra. Its cliché figure, sputtered out by various instruments, gradually falling into the bass. When the contrabassoon plays the last scrap of the trio theme, motive Y, the tempo slows down to a crawl, and only the rising and falling third of that motive can be heard quietly and sluggishly on timpani and basses, ending the movement in a shadow of mystery. With these final notes, Mephistopheles puts an end to this diabolical parody of Faust's heroic character. In the movement that follows, we will witness the hero's introspective reaction. 